0: Don't go. Please don't go. please don't go. please
1: don't go. please don't go. please don't Alright, welcome go. to the What's Up With Hungry podcast. My name is Ben Novak. Joining me today is your other host, Mr. Erde Peter. Mr. Peter Erde. And we have two very special guests joining us today. Uh, Lily Bayer, who writes for Geopolitical Futures. And please say hello, Lily.
2: Hi, good to be here.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for coming. And our other guest is Andrew Byrne, who is a writer for The Financial Times. Hello, Ben. Hello, Andrew. We'll be talking about Brexit today because this is a huge, huge story, and uh, it has a it will have a huge uh, effect on on Europe's future and the future of uh, of Britain. So let's get started. <laughs> The Brexit debate. A lot of people aren't too familiar with, uh, with the details of this entire uh, subject. So, uh, Andrew and Lily, if you guys can tell me a little bit, give me the facts. What are we looking at? What is the question? Who are the main players? Tell me something mm-hmm. about this.
3: Well, the vote tomorrow, June twenty third, uh, really is the culmination, I think, of probably a three-year-long process in which David Cameron, the British Prime Minister, has tried to resolve a tension within his own party between a Euroskeptic faction of Conservative MPs and the moderate wing of the party over Britain's place in the European Union, which is something that has been a, a question of thorny debate since the UK joined in 1973. Uh, the, the, the choice before voters is a simple remain or leave vote tomorrow. Uh, and the polls uh, put the result, result very much in a in a, in a spot where it's difficult to call the FTs poll of polls today, which aggregates the um, the amount of polls that have been conducted in the last few days and takes out some outliers and generates an average, puts the leave side slightly ahead by a whisker at forty five points to forty four uh, for remain. But really, in the last few days that the polls have gone up and down within that narrow field, and I think it's Really, quite hard to call. Quite hard to say for sure whether on Friday morning we'll be looking at uh, a Brexit, a British departure, or Britain reaffirming its place in the union.
1: So this is a very serious uh, competition right now. This is not
3: like there's one side who's leading by you know half a field. Uh, it's a tight race. So I, it's extremely difficult to call. I've spoken. I spoke today to someone uh, advising um, the Cameron campaign, the Remain campaign. Uh, And they said of all the models they've used to predict elections and referendums, including the models they used for the British general election, this was much harder to call. I think one of the things that's added extra uncertainty into the debate is in the last week, the murder, the high profile murder of a Labour pro-Remain MP, Joe Cox, uh, by what appears to have been uh, a far right British nationalist, although... We you know we we still don't know that for sure, and that that has added uncertainty. It's uh, added uncertainty on on both sides really, uh, and that has made this this whole debate, which has been, by British standards, quite a poisoned one, uh, even more uncertain. You've
1: mentioned the the motivations. Um, you spoke a bit about the Conservative Party and what's happening inside that party, but um, how. How apparent is the, is the problem or Britain's problem with the, with the European Union? Is it something that great that the average person feels this walking around on the streets like, oh, my God, my life is, my life is bad because of the European Union? Or is this something that's just kind of relegated to politics, to the higher ups mm. in politics?
3: Well, I think if you look at opinion polls in recent years of issues that are driving voter preferences, EU membership isn't necessarily in the top five. But what is, is is migration or more specifically, immigration. Uh, and about half of the inward net migration uh, of of people into the UK is from other EU countries because, of course, as EU citizens, um, citizens of other countries have the right to live and work freely in the UK as in any other EU country. And so in a sense, the EU debate is, is in, in some ways a proxy for a debate on migration uh, in into the, U- into the United Kingdom. I think it's fair to say as well that much of the British media and tabloid press has adopted quite an explicitly Eurosceptic editorial tone um, for for many years. And so in a way, this is a debate that's been rumbling on in the background, I think, for quite a long time.
0: Um, Do we know anything about demographics of of supporters?
3: We do. And there's some really interesting um, segmentation of the electorate happening. We know very clearly there's a regional divide between uh, a dominance of Remain voters in urban areas around London in particular uh, and also in Scotland and Northern Ireland where there's a strong Remain majority. And then in Northern England, um, more rural and English regions and small towns is a strong uh, leave majority. And then of course, demographically, there's an age split as well. You have predominantly Younger, more well-educated uh, voters leaning towards Remain, older, less well-educated, what they call C, C and C2 and DE voters who are uh, lower socioeconomic groups leaning towards, uh, leaving, leaning towards Remain, and that's been interpreted by many as suggesting that what we're seeing is, in some ways, um, echoing or mirroring. The kind of dis- disillusionment, disenchantment of the white working class in the United States, a sort of a similar phenomenon of uh, poorer, less well-educated English workers who feel that they've been displaced by immigration, uh, particularly the big bang enlargement uh, of the EU in 2004, the the large swe- swell of immigration from that point onwards.
1: Lily, you, uh, you've written about this topic before.
2: So for Central and Eastern Europe, the UK is a major destination, um, both for for students and for workers. Um, And a big part of why unemployment is so formally low in countries like Hungary is because hundreds of thousands of people are actually working abroad in places like the UK and sending money home. Um, And this uh, is a big factor why um, governments in this region, um, even though they're generally pretty Eurosceptic, are actually opposing Brexit because they know that if the UK does leave the EU, even though there would be a two-year period of renegotiating um, the relationship between the bloc um, and the UK, um, there's a very big chance that a lot of these workers would ultimately have to come home. um, And that would create an unemployment crisis in, in Central Europe.
1: And I'm, I'm sure it would also affect the amount of uh, money a given country, in, in Hungary's case, would receive in remittances from these, uh, from these citizens who are working in, in other countries. Lily, tell me a little bit about, about uh, Britain's relationship, historical relationship, with the rest of the continent. You, of course, are an expert on this subject. Can you give us a, a little overview on, uh, on what may have led to this point?
2: So the Brexit debate is um, very closely tied to Britain's historical strategy on the continent and how different British governments have tried to accomplish um, their, their goals when it comes to both defending Britain and making sure that its economic interests abroad are protected. So obviously, Britain is an island and easy to protect. But for centuries, it has been very much involved politically and militarily on the continent. And a part of that reason is because it is in Britain's interest to prevent any one power from becoming too militarily or economically dominant on the continent to the point where it would threaten British interests. And so what Britain has done for centuries, even though it hasn't physically been invaded for a very long time, is try to build alliances on the continent and try to balance between different powers to make sure that no one power would pose a threat to Britain. And so the EU is one vehicle, a modern vehicle, um, that has allowed the UK to do this. As a member, they they can vote. They can influence decision-making, and they can make sure that their interests, both in terms of defending the continent and um, you know, trade, um, are, are protected. But that doesn't mean that this is the only way um, the UK can protect its interests. After all, it was influential on the continent way before it had joined the EU. So this has been one format that governments have used, but it's not the only option.
1: How legitimate is this argument? Um for those in favor of, of Brexit saying that, uh, you know, the European Union has essentially, is essentially chipping away at our national sovereignty. So is there is there
3: an actual legitimate argument to be made here for that? I mean, it's certainly, you know, it's certainly quite a a clear perspective. I guess the difference is, you know, in reality, if you want to cooperate and if you want to gain the benefits of cooperation in international trade and engagement with one's neighbors, if you want to have any enhanced form of cooperation with your neighbors, there's always going to be, inevitably, some diminution of sovereignty. Uh, but, you know, I think we should need, need to clarify the difference between sovereignty and power. I mean, there's formal sovereignty uh, and there's, you know, legal uh, autonomy. And then there's the ability, the power you have to actually exert influence in global trade, to actually further your objectives internationally. And I think, I think Obama put it quite well, President Obama, when he said that, you know, the EU does not diminish uh, Britain's influence. It magnifies it. it. It multiplies it because Britain has played such an, uh, a forceful leading role in guiding the direction of the European Union in shaping how it developed. For instance, I think perhaps most notably in the uh, ambition of the EU's expansion eastwards to include new member states, including Hungary. Which is very much a priority of British foreign policy and its EU policies. So, you know, I think um, I think the sovereignty sovereignty issue is is, you know it's very forthright in the debate, and there's much emphasis placed on you know Brussels bureaucrats telling uh, telling Brits what to do. Um, In reality, I think uh, you know if if you look at where Britain was before it joined in 1973, which was in a highly indebted state. Um, where there was rolling strikes, energy cuts, crises after crisis, and where Britain is now. Part of the success story of Britain over the last 40 years has been due to its membership of the EU.
1: With, with the, uh, the Brexit debate, for somebody who's not a European to actually see something of this magnitude taking place right now, one of the things that struck me as incredibly interesting was, um, was the fact that uh, leaders of countries... Have like taken a role in like taking a very uh, open position on on this matter. You mentioned just a moment ago, uh, President Obama.
0: Is there is there anyone in the international community who like campaigned or came came out against?
3: I think I'm, I wonder if I wonder what North Korea's position is. All on, right, on, but on Brexit.
0: <laughs> maybe except for North Korea.
2: Well, uh, the National Front's Marine Le Pen. Um, has been talking about a French referendum. And so there has been an international impact in far right circles. But other than that... But
0: no one in power said that Britain should leave,
3: right? No. And look, I mean, internationally, in terms of leaders, there's been no one advocating a leave, even domestically in the British campaign. You know, the entire weight of expert opinion uh, or to put it negatively, the elite or the establishment uh, has come out in favour of Remain. Um, but I, Michael Gove, who's one of the leaders of the Leave campaign, expressed a sort of a strange anti-elite sentiment that seems to pervade the Leave campaign when he said, you know, we, we've we had enough of these experts telling us uh, what to do and what will happen. <laughs> um, and, and that does sound on the face of it like an absurd statement, uh, but it does reflect, I think, the kind of anti-establishment um, mood that is underpinning much of the Leave vote.
0: Why do you think... That people are so against the EU. Well, I think, I mean,
3: uh, Lily would probably have, uh, you know, views on on the particular British mindset and Britain's uh, historical role and its um, geopolitical strategies. I think more broadly that answer your question. I think it's it's. I think there's probably two sides to it. I think one is that, you know, if you have uh, this greater pooling of sovereignty and decision making at a level that is a, a, above national governments, it's necessarily further removed from the average everyday citizen. So it's harder for them to make that connection to know personally the people making the decisions to have regular contact with them. That's a, you know, that's a democratic gap or or a distance that's hard to bridge. I think secondly, there's another factor, which is Brussels is a very convenient um, whipping boy for national governments yep. who want to avoid responsibility for... Um, you know, their own policy decisions. It's very convenient to blame Brussels for policy outcomes that are unpopular. And I noticed in in the debate last night there was a huge uh, Brexit debate in the UK held inside a football stadium, which was almost nightmarish. In fact, I thought in its atmosphere. But it was quite noticeable that a lot of the complaints that uh, Leave voters had were understandable complaints about overcrowded hospitals, overcrowded schools, low wages, work instability, and and arguably, it's it's hard to see why the EU is necessarily seen as the source of these problems. You can argue, sure, net emigration of three hundred thousand people a year places strains in all these services, and that's undoubtedly true. But you could also argue that these are the these pressures are the result of policy decisions on fiscal spending made by London. But it's quite convenient to, to blame an outside force like Brussels for that. Yeah,
2: just on a European level, one interesting uh, phenomenon that uh, has been coming up is that in places like Italy and France, that you Is becoming more unpopular as well, and people are starting to be more in favor of referendums over there as well. And I think on a European level, especially in Western Europe, one other factor is that countries like the United Kingdom are net contributors to the European budget, unlike countries in Central and Eastern Europe. And so for the average voter, when they look at the statistics and they see that they pay in more to the EU than they officially get from the EU in their budgets, and that people in other countries, um, like Hungary and like Poland, are receiving more funds, that to them may seem unfair. And another issue that we have seen, especially with the refugee crisis, is that voters are seeing a lot of gridlock in Brussels. They're seeing that countries with different interests are simply unable to come to decisions in a timely manner, and that a lot of decisions that are made in Brussels are being ignored, and we have seen this here in Hungary. Um, And so I think that one element of the Brexit debate has been voters in the UK looking um, at other parts of the EU and seeing that what happens in Brussels is not translating well um, into action.
1: Andrew, can you tell me anything about the the feeling on the ground, big business, big business in the UK? Are they they pro-leave? How are they looking at this entire... uh this entire debate?
3: Well, I mean, I think, you know, all of the uh, significant economic authorities and institutes and associations representing business um, uh, and uh, an economic analysis in the UK uh, are quite clear. You know, they differ on the the magnitude of the impact of a Brexit uh, and they differ in their approach to measuring and forecasting it. But I think they're almost all agreed that it will be a negative impact on Britain's GDP, um, you know the convert the 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 argument on the on the other side is that uh you know if we leave uh, if the u k leaves that all of this red tape and regulatory requirements will be reduced it's it's questionable how much that will be the case. I mean, if Britain wants to remain um an active trading partner with the eu, which I think accounts for about half of its trade, you know those goods that british companies and businesses Uh, sell to the EU will still have to comply with all of those requirements. So it's hard to see that, it's hard to imagine, you know, on post-Brexit day that there will suddenly be a, a reduction in regulations. And in fact, the whole purpose of the common market was to reduce regulatory differences between countries, which for large businesses is an advantage. They would most often rather comply with one set of rules than 28. Um, that said, of course, there are, you know, there are business leaders who've come out uh, in favour of Brexit. Um, the owner of JD Weatherspoons, one of the country's largest pub chains, uh, has come out in favour of uh, of Brexit too.
0: What, what was his reasoning?
3: Uh, I mean, his re- reasoning was red tape uh, and uh, he, it was put to him during the debate last night. You know, would, would you, uh, if we leave the EU and a lot of the workers' rights regulations that come from EU level which are also a form of red tape, um, uh, if those are removed, will you then cut your workers' wages and make them work uh, longer hours? He denied that. Um, But he's certainly not the only business person who who favours a Brexit.
2: Yeah, one element here as well has been that smaller business owners in the UK, I believe, tend to be more in favor of leaving because, you know, they are at a disadvantage. They're smaller and it's harder for them to comply with the red tape than some of the bigger companies.
0: And also, I think they might not see that many benefits from from membership as as the big companies. One other thing, you mentioned uh, that, regulation would not necessarily be removed
3: just by leaving. Yeah, well, and this is the big question and that's the, the one of the big gaps, I believe, on the Leave side of the argument, although it doesn't seem to have hindered their uh, appeal to voters yet, is, is what exactly happens after. does post-Brexit look like? You know, does it mean that Britain's completely out of the European economic area, which is sort of a greater EU with Norway and other countries involved? if it just moves into the European economic area, it still has to comply with all of those regulations um, and it still has to, in fact, contribute to the EU budget, uh, but it has no say in the decision-making. It's what the Norwegians call diplomacy by facts. Uh, the other argument put forward by the Leave side was um, what they've dubbed as the... the uh, the Alba- I mean, it was, it was sort of derisively described as the Albanian model, um, w- which was the suggestion that Britain could negotiate... Um, Privileged access to the market without contributing financially to it, which is the the kind of halfway house that Balkan countries like Albania have, um, that's questionable. That's an
0: interesting it. argument for Britain to strive for a uh, for a position. Of yeah, the the
3: Albanian Prime Minister thought it was uh, not one to aspire to. <laughs> um, Albania is a wonderful country. Uh, I visited it myself, but it's it's certainly not Britain. Should Britain remain?
0: in the sort of economic union, to some extent, would that not automatically mean that migration policies, would they would not be able to be changed
3: drastically? Yeah, I mean, I think, and Lily, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it, you know, if if uh, the UK wants to halt or completely control freedom of movement of labour, it, it can't be part of the European economic area. Uh, so it has to make a, a clean break. Which means, you know, I mean, ultimately, that means uh, tariffs on British goods being sold uh, to EU countries, which is going to cause immense um, displacement uh, and difficulty for businesses, large and small, who export.
2: Right. We do have to keep in mind, though, that Britain is a very different kind of economy from the Balkans. Um, so when they will be sitting down to negotiate with the EU, if if they vote to leave uh, during this two-year transitional period, um, then they will have a, a better negotiating position than many other countries that have tried to deal with the bloc. And another factor to keep in mind is that the EU needs the British market, even if Britain is not inside of the EU. So they do have an incentive as big exporters to the UK market um, to to come to some kind of um, beneficial agreement for both sides. Of course, that will come with a lot of uncertainty during this two-year period. And um, as Andrew said, it's the uncertainty that is, in fact, um, driving a lot of the um, potential economic losses right now. Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, I think Lily's right, it's totally unprecedented to have a negotiation like this with a significant, if we imagine former EU member state, and one of the difficulties, though, with the Balkan comparison is, in some ways, the reason Albania and these countries have such privileged access is precisely because they are small Balkan countries that are presumably on a path to EU membership. Um, so, in some ways, Britain's heft and and the significance of Britain may count against it rather than for it in applying for that particular model. Um, I think, you know, ultimately pragmatism will have to prevail if there is an outvote and there is an interest in both sides to strike a deal that's workable and doesn't hurt business and industry on either side. On the other hand, you know, there is a a certain view in some European capitals that it can't uh, be made or appear to seem too easy for countries to divorce from the EU because some fear that this could precipitate Other departures, a Frexit maybe uh, in the case of France uh, or others. So you know, really, it's it's a very uncertain time. I think remaining in the European economic area is a pretty would be a pretty benign
0: consequence
3: of a Brexit. Um, But the difficulty is that that kind of outcome I don't think would really satisfy the. The voters who voted uh, Brexit, voted Leave to, quote, take control back of of British borders, of immigration, of regulation, you know, uh, an EEA membership would not deliver any of the promises the Leave campaign have been making. So that makes, I think, the outcome a lot more uncertain and hard to predict.
2: And one fun fact, um, my organization looked at uh, over eight different quantitative studies that were made in the UK of what a post-Brexit UK economy would look like. And the statistics that they came up with were all completely different. And they were all very reputable think tanks and consulting firms. And I think that is a reflection of just how uncertain this situation really is.
1: Lily, you mentioned earlier... You had uh, spoken about uh, how Central Eastern European countries are approaching this this subject. Um, But are there countries outside the EU who stand to gain something from uh, potential Brexit?
2: Absolutely. So for the Kremlin, um, Brexit would be a positive outcome uh, just for the reason that Russia has been working very hard to divide the Western alliance. So the UK is actually one of the countries that is has sent some troops to the Baltic states and Poland um, for Training and uh, defense purposes, but it will also um, lead more troops. I believe it will contribute. It will lead a force of a thousand troops um, in the Baltic states and Poland. Um, this will be formally decided during the July NATO summit. Um, and so, um, trying to uh, put a wedge between the UK and some of its other allies um, is, is something that the Kremlin would like to see. Um, for the Kremlin, anything that slows down decision-making in Europe is positive, um, and anything that makes these decisions um, not very cohesive is positive. And so um, I think that from the perspective of Central and Eastern European countries, when they look at Brexit, they fear that they are being left behind. And this applies perhaps more to Poland than um, to some of the other countries. But I think that the Hungarian government is recognizing this as well, because despite Viktor Orban friendly relationship with the Kremlin. Um, I think the Hungarian leadership does recognize that, um, especially after the outbreak of hostilities in Ukraine in 2014, um, Hungary does need the U.S. and it needs the U.K. and Western allies um, to boost its defenses. And so for for the Hungarians, there is definitely a strategic element here.
0: Was the the ad in the Daily Mail aimed at the readers of the Daily Mail? Was it a gesture to the Cameron government, a show up support for them? And do you think it had any meaningful impact?
3: Well, I think the impact is hard to um, hard to deduce, and I think it's almost um, certain that the ad was was cleared with um, David Cameron's government before it was placed, I think. It would probably be, uh, you know, I think the, I don't think the government in Hungary would have taken an ad out like that without in advance discussing it with Downing Street. I think, when you look at all of the other EU leaders and their engagements in the debates, uh, in the debate in the UK. I think they've all been cautious not to do anything that would undermine David Cameron's uh, argument um, as to its impact. You know, it's it's very hard to say. I think it's n- noteworthy that it was placed in the Daily Mail and not in any other newspaper. Um, I think it was worded quite cautiously, you know, it, it wasn't... Uh, What's
0: the significance of the Daily Mail?
3: Well, I think, you know, it's it's clear the Daily Mail has uh, a, a readership that would be more Eurosceptic, perhaps, than some of the broadsheet newspapers. Um, and um, I think, you know, the choice of newspaper would obviously be significant. They all appeal to different groups. Um, but I think it's important to note that the ad, the ad advertisement itself didn't actually say vote remain or vote leave. It didn't include an instruction to the voter. Uh, it simply said we're proud to stand with you. Uh, so that was a cautious wording, I think, which reflects well the caution of EU leaders not to be seen as intruding in, in a British debate.
0: I was wondering if 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 Hungary's political sort of uh, stance was driven by the people we we spoke about, the hundreds of thousands of Hungarian uh, staying in London and working in London.
2: Yeah, I think that this is in part a recognition on the part of the Orbán government that a lot of their own voters would be Against a Brexit, and so we talked about the hundreds and thousands of uh, Hungarians who work abroad. I believe around three hundred thousand um, work in the United Kingdom, but you know the estimates really vary. Um, but when you go to the UK, I'm sure a lot of our as our listeners know, um, you will find Hungarians almost in every corner. Yeah. Um and. Uh, They don't only send money back home, but there is an expectation, um, perhaps a hope in the part of the government that some of them would one day return home and bring back skills and experience. Whether that will actually happen is questionable. Um, And so... Another factor to keep in mind as well from the Orban government's strategy is that um, a lot of their campaigning has been around employment. And there are two factors that keep unemployment incredibly low, at least officially in Hungary. The first one is the Orban government's public works program, which artificially lowers the statistics for unemployment. And the second one is Hungarians going abroad. And if either one of those changes, then the government would be in a lot of trouble.
0: Uh, but that, I mean, the Brexit itself, as we discussed, would not automatically mean that Hungarians would have to leave the next day.
3: Well, we just don't know. I mean, there's certainly going to be probably a mm, two-year transition period. But we we simply don't know if uh, Hungarians will no longer be allowed to, to come and work and live freely in the U- in the UK. We don't know if there will be an amnesty for those already living there. We don't know whether there'll be a quota. It's It's really an unknown. And so... Or something, as Ali says, that's such an important part of managing uh, the employment situation in Hungary, I guess. It's a big risk.
1: What does that mean for the European Union as a whole? Is this a sign? Is this, could this be an indicator that, oh, maybe the European Union will be stronger now that, I don't know, a, a member state that didn't quite like being here is no longer with us? Um, or, or will it be weakened further?
2: I do think that if Britain does leave, we can expect Brussels to be a lot weaker than it has been thus far. I mean, the UK has had a lot of opt-outs and exceptions when it comes to EU regulations that were negotiated. But I think that a major um, European economy leaving the bloc would be a huge blow to Brussels' legitimacy and would not only slow down decision-making, but would drive other member countries like Hungary, for example, to seek more concessions from Brussels, more opt-outs, and perhaps even ignore Brussels more um, after they see that a major country has left the bloc. And also in terms of domestic politics across the bloc, I think it will be a lot easier for governments to justify ignoring Brussels' Um, or opting out of policies um, to their voters when they can point to Britain and say, look, a major economy has just left the Union.
3: What do you think, Andrew? I think there's a, it's, there's a number of scenarios. I think we're quite likely to see that that loss of legitimacy um, and we're likely to see euroskeptic forces empowered in France, the Netherlands and elsewhere, which could lead to greater fragmentation. We could, on the other hand, see in the absence of the UK, a desire by the core, the solid core member states around France and Germany or the the founding six to drive forward, to safeguard the gains made in integration and and drive forward uh, ever more tightly into an integration around uh, a Franco-German Couple, if you like, I think there may be a, a desire on the part of the elite to safeguard the gains they've made by driving integration. And there's been further. talk about this in the past too, um, outside has, of the yeah. Brexit debate. And you know, for in, for, me, for for much of the EU's history, uh, the, the UK has been a break on some forms of that integration. So there may be a desire. To 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 speed that up, you could also another scenario would be the emergence of a kind of a two-speed Europe, which there are thing provisions in the treaties for for enhanced cooperation, and you might see you know an inner core, as I mentioned, and maybe an outer core outside the eurozone, maybe including countries in Central and Eastern Europe and the Baltic states who are torn in a sense uh, and don't want to integrate further, but have, but don't see a future for themselves outside the EU. So I think, you know, we may be looking at what some people occasionally call, you know, as a constitutional moment where, you know, the in the, the next, the, the crucial months and year or two after this Brexit, this potential Brexit, and of course we should bear in mind that it is possible that Remain may win and uh, life may go on as before after June 23rd. But if it doesn't, we may see a moment where the decisions made in the, that crucial aftermath, the morning after the night before, set in train the kind of Europe that will be with us for decades to come. And that has implications for relations with Russia, for the Western alliance uh, and for the co- whole cohesion uh, and uh, relations between all European countries. But, I'm oh sorry, go ahead.
2: One more thing, though, perhaps to um, to talk about is that even if Remain wins We may see changes to the UK's relationship with the EU because we are essentially seeing half of the British electorate, regardless of who wins, currently supporting um, exiting Britain, uh, exiting the uh, European Union. Um, And so I think that for any future British government, including the the current one, um, it will be incredibly difficult politically, even if Remain wins, to wake up the morning. Um, after the vote and to continue as if um, nothing has happened and nothing has changed in the position of the electorate and so we may see britain seeking more concessions um, from the eu um, more opt-outs and we will also see um, other countries perhaps pursuing referendums
1: what does that say about the european union as a as an as an institution when uh when a a much larger let's say net net uh, contributor of EU funds, has the opportunity to actually opt out of things that, say, a smaller country, net beneficiary of EU funds can't necessarily do. Um, does does this seem to you like a, a working uh, relationship with the European Union? Is this something that's good
3: in the long run? Well, I think we should bear in mind that, you know, many states already do have opt-outs of different levels of integration. We have 18 Eurozone states uh, and 10 non-eurozone states who you know granted have a stated commitment to join the euro but none of them i don't think any of them really are looking to do so in the in the near future we have some schengen zone countries some non-schengen zone countries so i think it's inevitable that that kind of differentiated integration continues i think even if the uk votes to remain i think the uk's integration is kind of ground to a halt for now and that essentially was one of david cameron's Pitches to voters, as he said, well, we've got this commitment that Britain is no longer committed to so-called ever closer union. Um, whether there's a difference for small or large states, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, it's perhaps easier for the UK to opt out given its relative size um, and its historical um you know, physical uh, gap from the continent than, say, for instance, Hungary, which is much more tightly bound in with the German economy um, uh, and thus is sort of in the slipstream of, of the German industrial and economic model.
0: There was a piece by Anne Applebaum uh, a few months back, I think, in the Washington Post where She basically painted this picture that we are three elections away or three votes away from the apocalypse, pretty much. The one being Trump winning in the U.S. presidential election, Marie Le Pen getting elected in France and uh, Britain leaving the EU. Do you think that that's a likely or... Or a scenario that we should be like fearful of. Well,
3: I don't claim to have uh, you know uh, power as it seems the future. I think you know the bookmakers on the UK and um, and all of those three scenarios favor the the you know the less scary option, if you like, or the less uncertain option. I mean, it's quite likely in a year's time. I mean, that Britain will remain a part of the EU, although we don't know that. It's quite likely that, given especially the recent fundraising figures that have been released from the US about Donald Trump's campaign, that we will have a President Clinton in Washington in the White House. Uh, and Marine Le Pen, uh, you know, still faces the difficulty, even if she can get past the first round in a French presidential election of, of actually winning the second round, which would be a, a big if. What What those three events happening together means, I don't know, but I think it does underline that we're in a very strange time. I think we're in a an era of um, popular unrest and dissatisfaction, um, which is probably not unsurprising given the, you know, eight years of economic recession and stasis we've had. Um, I don't know what that means for global stability. What we've seen as well from this particular campaign is that the Government in the UK and the political establishment does not really have a convincing response to the grievances that these three different movements represent, whether it's far-right politicians in France or populism in the US or Brexit. Uh, and, you know, I don't think they can continue to muddle on through for the next few years uh, without resolving these these kind of grievances.
2: Yeah, and this is all tied to a greater problem, which is that after 1991, um, a lot has shifted in the international system, but countries haven't really quite found their place and their role. So during the Cold War, everything was locked in. Countries knew which side they were on, and largely um, along ideological and geopolitical lines, they were pretty much set. And now, when it we, we saw this when Trump talked about um, how the U.S. is not getting a lot out of NATO. That kind of statement would have been unimaginable 25 years ago. But today, that kind of statement resonates with a lot of the um, U.S. electorate, and it scares a lot of voters in Europe. Um, and so when when we look at these uh, political changes, we have to keep in mind that um, the entire system is transitioning. And both voters and politicians are trying to adjust, trying to find what their new strategies will be and should be. Um, And in a way, a lot of our structures are still old ones. So for example, NATO, which was founded in 1949, is still in place. Um, And the US is still disproportionately uh, funding defense for essentially the entire West, Um, and yet the EU has a much larger population than the United States. It has a relatively strong economy. Um, And in the US, people are feeling like now that there is no Soviet threat, the European Union should um, evolve. It should perhaps have a greater role in defense. Um, And so there are a lot of um, gaps between expectations and realities um, in, in what both voters and politicians are seeing right now.
1: Do you think this can somehow translate into something that would happen with NATO? Would this have an impact on NATO? How would this affect, I don't know, the European Union's uh, strategic role or geopolitical role in, in, uh, in this region with the conflict in, uh, in, in Ukraine against the backdrop of an aggressive Russia?
3: I mean, I, I think it's quite clear that, you know, the most, I would argue, the most significant response to the Russian invasion in Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea, and the most significant response to the West has been the, uh, specifically the EU sanctions that have been imposed. They're more significant economically than the US sanctions, although they're done in partnership. And although the, you know, the deterrence factor of greater NATO equipment is important, I think this is the, this is the measure that's really, has, has bitten on uh, Russia's uh, economic and financial well-being. And there's no doubt that without the UK, I think it's, it's questionable if those sanctions, which, you know, it's, it's easy to forget how much stress there was to get 28 member states to agree on those measures. There was a lot of resistance uh, by countries north and south.
1: And there continues to be. To there continues to be.
3: And, and I mean, it's only it seems to be only a matter of time before those sanctions are, are progressively rolled back. I think it would be interesting and it's perhaps a job for the historians to look at the role Britain played in that debate. But I think it seems to me that it would have been more difficult to achieve uh, agreement on the sanctions if the UK was not part uh, of the EU. Uh, and so I think that, you know, I think that again raises questions about the ability of the West, both NATO and the EU, to deter Russian aggression in future if the UK is a semi-detached member of, of those groups. Well, of, of the EU, I should say.
2: Right. And we tend to forget this, but Britain actually has one of the largest militaries in the world and is one of the largest spenders on defense in the world. Um, And so even though Brexit wouldn't directly impact its role in NATO, it would impact um, its relationship with governments in Berlin and in Paris, and it would impact how the West acts together. And as Andrew said, a lot of these issues are very much tied together. So we, when we look at EU sanctions and when we look at NATO's military response, those are all parts of one cohesive strategy. And so when one country is no longer directly in the room, when a part of that strategy is being crafted and decided on, that can undermine The rest of the strategy and that's definitely something to keep in mind.
1: All right I think we've pretty much uh we've pretty much hashed it out. Thank you Lily, thank you Andrew for uh for coming by. This was a very interesting discussion and uh we look forward to seeing you back. Any my final and this is like my trick question that I must ask. Any predictions? Do you guys have an idea? Do you have a feeling? It's a tight race, it's a tight race.
3: Well, I looked at the weather forecast for tomorrow, which is a key determinant of turnout. We want a high turnout if we want Remain, so it encourages all those lazy young voters who are pro-European to vote, but not high enough so that people who who never vote at all uh, actually turn out. I think think no one can really predict with any degree of certainty. But if you have to push me on it, I'm going to go for a 52.5% in favour of Remain. Wow. Lily?
2: What I'm going to say is that regardless of what happens tomorrow, Britain needs the EU economically and the EU needs Britain. So even if they leave, I think that they will get a trade agreement, a pretty good trade agreement for both sides. And I do think that even if the UK leaves, it will want to maintain a role and influence on the continent, just as it has for centuries.
1: So thanks for listening to the What's Up with Hungry podcast. This is Ben Novak signing out, joined by Peter Arde. Goodbye. Andrew Byrne and Lily Byer. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.